Welcome to Every Moment His, a podcast dedicated to contemplating how God's preached Word impacts every moment of our lives. This sermon was preached at Holy Cross in Kearney, Nebraska by Pastor John Rasmussen. Well, grace, mercy, and peace to each and every one of you this third Sunday in Advent. Amen. Go ahead and uh, grab a Bible if you haven't opened up yet to Zephaniah chapter 3. That's on page 790 in your pew Bible. And our, our text today will focus really on just one single verse from Zephaniah chapter 3. We'll be looking at verse 17. That's on page 790. <clears throat> and let's just go ahead and, and let's read that verse together. Chapter 3. Verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Amen. So God singing over us with joy. Uh, Who in the world do these words apply to? Who's the prophet talking about? Is he talking about you? Is he talking about me? Is he talking about us? Or is he talking about somebody else? Can you imagine God singing over you with joy? Maybe like the way a new dad might kind of make a fool of himself and and sing for joy over his newborn child. Or can you imagine God cradling you and quieting you with his love like a mother might with her one-year-old? Can you imagine that? Maybe that's an easy thought for you. Maybe it's not. But before we talk about you or me, let's talk about the people the prophet was preaching to originally a long time ago. Would it have been easy or would it have been hard for them to imagine God quieting them with his love? Would it have been hard or easy for them to imagine God singing over them with great joy. This comforting prophecy that we read about comes to us from the short little three-chapter book of the prophet Zephaniah. Now, here's the thing about Zephaniah. I don't think that the prophet Zephaniah had a lot of friends. Um, I don't think he'd be the kind of guy you'd want to talk to at a Christmas cocktail party um, because he seems a little cranky. If you read all three chapters, You'll see what I mean. He had a lot of things to say that were not comforting, that were not convenient, and that definitely were not worth rejoicing about. For example, look with me at chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. Imagine if this is the kind of Christmas card you got from Zephaniah. The great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. It's not exactly the kind of Christmas card greetings you'd want to get, right? Um, 
Zephaniah had been given an awful, sad, heavy word that he had to declare to God's people. You see, what had happened is that God had told his people over and over again to repent and to turn from their sins and their idolatry. He had sent prophet after prophet to turn them away from worshiping other gods. And yeah, the people did worship the Lord. In fact, they even had a temple dedicated to the Lord, but they also wanted a little bit of Baal on the side, and they wanted a little Asherah on the weekends. They wanted to worship God, but they also wanted to hook up with Moloch. There's only one God, there's no other. And so God wanted a monogamous, faithful relationship with his people, but time and time again, they opted out for an open relationship with God, and that doesn't end well. Not only that, God had called his people to represent himself to the world. The kings and the prophets and the priests and the people were called to be different than the world so that the world would know who the one true God is. But time and time again, God's people and even their spiritual leaders were no different than the world. They were an unjust, adulterous, greedy, worldly people. Now, some of the people did listen to the prophets. For example, King Josiah, you can read about him in 2 Kings 22 and 23. Josiah, he ruled at the time when Zephaniah preached, and we're told in the scripture that he had a sort of spiritual awakening as he and others discovered the long-lost book of the law that had not been read for generations by God's people. And so having this spiritual awakening, what he does is he kicks out the priests of Baal from the temple. He got rid of all the images to other gods in the temple. He even kicked out the male prostitutes from the temple. Yes, it had gotten that bad that there were prostitutes serving in God's temple. But by the time that Zephaniah preached, things had gotten so bad that Judah and Jerusalem were too far gone. Even in spite of all the reforms that Josiah enacted to purify the worship of God's people, the hearts of God's people were still too hardened, too far gone, too resolute in their idolatry to steer the ship away from collision. And so the only option was invasion by the Babylonians, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and finally exile far away from home because God is not mocked. Even though he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, patient, full of kindness, God is not mocked. And so exile came first in 597 BC and then in 586, just as short time after Josiah was king and Zephaniah prophesied, the words of Zephaniah came true to a people who wouldn't listen. Now, I want you to imagine being in exile. Imagine if you can't, being in exile far away from home. You no longer have a temple. You wonder if God has abandoned you. You're living in the very real, tangible consequences of your idolatry. And in the midst of your darkness, you and your fellow exiles have a little three-chapter scroll from a guy named Zephaniah. And as you roll it open and you read it together, you wince and you weep 
as you read the words of warning that you did not heed and that you now experience. But then, surprisingly, near the end of that scroll in chapter 3, you hear these words. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I can just imagine those exiles looking at each other, looking behind themselves and saying, who's God talking to? Is he talking to us? Could he really be singing over us, rejoicing over us in the midst of our exile? After we've done our worst, could God actually give us his best? Yes. Because that's who God is, and that's what God does. Even when we break every promise, God remains faithful. Even when we've sinned every sin we can and we wake up in our own spiritual vomit, God really does love his people, broken as they are. So, back to the original question, who is God talking about today as we read these words? That he will rejoice over his people with gladness and quiet them with his love and exalt over them with loud singing. Who in the world is God talking about? Is he talking about you? Is he talking about me? Is he talking about us? Could God really be singing over us, rejoicing over us, quieting us with his love? Now think about how you answer that question. Because how you answer it's important. You might think, of course God rejoices over me. Why wouldn't he? I'm good enough, I'm smart enough. No, doggone it, people like me, right? I'm a pretty awesome person. So why wouldn't God like me? But that's the wrong answer. You need to remember that there is much in your life and much in my life that is not worth rejoicing over. You know that, right? In fact, there is much in your life and there is much in my life that deserves present and eternal punishment. But you might think, God could never rejoice over me. I'm just too weak in my faith. I'm so full of false starts and I'm so easily distracted in my faith. How could God ever rejoice over me when he looks at my track record? And in a sense, you're actually right. We should rightly mourn and grieve the sins in our hearts, our minds, and our habits. We should be rightly saddened by the sins that we pass on from generation to generation and the ruin and the pain that they cause for ourselves and for others and even our church, not to mention how they dishonor the name of God. But if you think that God does not rejoice over you, you are in fact very wrong. Because you are forgetting the very important singular reason why God rejoices over you with singing and great joy, and that is Jesus Christ, his son. Him, and him alone. You see, if, if you think that God rejoices over you with singing because of your good works, 
Or if you think that God doesn't rejoice over you because of your sins, you're missing the only grounds we have for confidently believing and claiming that God rejoices and sings over us, and that is Jesus Christ. It's not you or me, it's Christ. See, as Christians, we don't look to ourselves. Hear that again. As Christians, we don't look to ourselves. Instead, we look to the manger where God loved us enough to send his son into the weakness and the brokenness of our human nature. That's how much God invested in us. That's how much he got involved. We look to the cross where we see God's son giving his best after we had done our worst. We look to the empty tomb where God's life overcame our death. Only a God who truly rejoices in you would go to such depths to reclaim you and make you his own, right? See, hear this. As a Christian, as a baptized child of God, as one who is in Christ, you are not your mistakes. You are not your sins. You are not your weaknesses. You are not your past. No, you are in Christ. And since you are in Christ, what does God rejoice over more than his son? The very words that God spoke over Jesus at his baptism, those words of rejoicing, this is my beloved son, those are the words that God rejoices over you with now. This is my beloved son, my beloved daughter in Christ, not because of what you've done, and even in spite of what you have done, you are God's beloved, all because of Christ. Let that sink in for a moment. So what we're left with is a big question. What difference does it make in your life and in my life, that God rejoices over you as his child. How might you look differently at your daily responsibilities? How might you look differently at the worship that you bring to God? How might you look differently at your relationship with other Christians, seeing that God rejoices over you with joy? How might you look at your obedience to the Ten Commandments differently from the vantage point of God rejoicing over you rather than frowning over you. Because some people struggle through life thinking that they live under God's frown or or maybe they just live under his very conditional smile based on their performance that one day God's happy and one day God's not. Some people worship God as a distant boss or a disappointed parent who shrugs and sighs with arms crossed. But did that kind of God give his son for you? Is that the kind of God that broke into human history to redeem you? Is that the kind of God who defeats death on Easter morning? Listen to this carefully, okay? Listen to this carefully and then continue to repeat it to yourself even when you can't see it or you can't feel it. God rejoices in you because you are in Christ. 
And Jesus Christ, you being in him, is the singular source, the one foundation for every good work that you do, every song of praise, every offering, every sacrifice that you make for his kingdom. It all comes back to God rejoicing in you. The Apostle John says in his epistle, we love him because he first loved us. And in the same way, we rejoice in him because he first rejoiced in us. And so people of God, weak and struggling as we are, rejoice. Rejoice in the one who rejoices over you because you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Amen.